here's the interesting thing about the competence research. The people that report to you judge your competence primarily on your communication. The people that you report to judge your skills. So if I'm a school leader, how I communicate to teachers and staff is going to be how they perceive me as a competent leader. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. All right, today we're here doing our educational administration series, and we have a great guest with us today. Shannon, who do we got? We have Doug Fisher back with us again, which is a pleasure. So can you just real quick introduce yourself again to our audience and let them know sort of what your expertise is? Sure. I'm a faculty member and professor in educational leadership at San Diego State University, and then a teacher leader at Health Sciences High where I've been for 15 years at a school making uh, learning occur and leading the learning of grownups and students. And you also have a website. I do, fisherandfry.com. She spells her last name F-R-E-Y, Fisher and A-N-D Fry. Nice, and I've seen on your website, you guys have tons of cool resources. You post articles, videos, all kinds of great stuff. And we have a YouTube channel, totally free, Fisher and Fry, all one word. And we put videos up there all the time. People should subscribe to it because teachers in San Diego let us come film them all the time. And we just pop them up there. Right now we're doing a whole series on engagement for the back to school time. Like how do you actually teach students about engagement, not just expect them to be engaged? And for anybody who missed season two, Dr. Fisher was on with us and gave some great tips for how to get kids really driving their own learning. It was amazing. And today we're having him on to talk with us about educational administration, because that is something we hear a lot of teachers talking about frustrations or difficulties. We hear administrators talking about ways they want to improve and make their experience for their teachers and their staff better. So we brought Mr. Fisher on today to talk to us about that. Excellent. Yes. So let's start out with one of the frustrations I hear lots of teachers talk about is there's this big focus for educators to build relationships, build relationships with your students, with the parents of your students, with your team members. And then I hear teachers say, what about the administrators? Shouldn't they be building relationships with us? And I think that's a valid point. So will you talk to us about your thoughts on that? Sure. So I think that those relationships are part of a bigger idea called leader credibility. And the first piece of leader credibility is trust. And relational trust is so important in schools. And people like Megan Shannon Moran have been studying trust in schools for decades. And that includes the trust, the relationships between the administrators and teachers, teachers and each other, students and each other, students and teachers, the whole school with its community, including parents and families, it's that that first level of credibility is, do you trust me? Do we have this relational trust? In addition in leader credibility, there's a phrase called immediacy. It comes out of psychology. 
it's related and connected. So do we feel, uh, is the leader relatable? And do we feel a sense of connection with, with that leader? And that immediacy also uh, builds our credibility and has to do with relationships, as you were saying earlier. So if I'm not very relatable, and even if you trust me, if I'm not very relatable and hard to connect with, we're probably not gonna have a great relationship. And it's not just personality. I mean, people say, oh, that's who I am. I'm a you know, blank person. No, it's the behaviors that you give off that make you relatable or not. And we, when we're in the leadership position, we have to be aware of our behaviors and are we being approachable, accessible, relatable, because that starts the relationship. And then we have to be trustworthy. And when we're trustworthy and have this immediacy, we're gonna form relationships. I mean, after all, humans are social beings. We like having people around and socializing and we, we thrive on that sense of belonging and connectedness. Especially in schools. I think schools are sort of a home away from home for kids and for staff because we're with each other for such long periods of time and we're learning and growing that it just creates relationship, I think, especially when we have so many teachers who work so hard mm-hmm. to build those relationships with kids right. to kind of find where their strengths are and support them and really help yeah. them in the process. And I think talking about trust and immediacy with administrators. A lot of times administrators are pulled in so many crazy directions. It's really hard for them to be present in their schools to give that immediacy, to be able to answer those questions, to be able to show up and and address the things that the teachers are feeling right then in that moment. What kinds of things can administrators do to maybe meet that need? Well, there was a study of Chicago schools, 100 schools for three years, and they showed that only about 13% of the leader's time was spent in the instructional program, like in classrooms, watching instruction, having conversations about teaching and learning. Because as you said, leaders get pulled off in all kinds of directions. You're in all these meetings, you have complaints and you know, all the stuff that's real for leaders. But what if we could double that? What if it was 26% instead of 13%? How different would it feel at a school? And I think being present in the teaching and learning environment, not taking your laptop in and answering emails, but actually being present in the teaching and learning environment goes a long way because you'll identify pain points and you know what's the next learning we need to provide. So the reason we're about engagement right now is we're in schools and in classrooms and teachers are saying, it's harder for me to invite students into learning right now than I remember from the past. So we've been doing a bunch of work on engagement. We're also hearing students say, I don't feel as connected or belonging to the school right now. So we're looking at a whole bunch of stuff on belonging and how to help teachers reestablish the sense of belonging. So when you're around the learning, you hear things that then you can build into the next stuff that you do with teachers. In addition, being present in the teaching and learning environment helps our relationships. As we can say, yesterday when I watched, you know, when I watched Andrew do this lesson and Marissa was doing this, we can start talking about the teaching and learning process. So figuring out ways to have meaningful time inside classrooms builds that immediacy, that connectedness, but it's not just being present in those classrooms. It's being present around the school. Where we put our bodies communicates the value we place in things. So 
I used to work with a principal. His name is also Doug. Uh, I used to work with a principal and we mm -hmm. at school, the professional development session was repeated five times, the same content, and you would go on your prep period. Oh, and yeah. this principal would sit through five consecutive repeated sessions. And what he said to me, I said, why are you here? It's like the third time you've heard this. And he said, because the people here did not see me here this period. And I, I never knew him to miss uh, a professional development. And he would sit with different groups, different periods and talk and process. And he was really credible because of that. Hmm. That's where he chose to put his body. And you know, there could have been a hundred other things he was doing to spend an entire day hearing the same content over and over again. But what he said is watching different people interact with the content, different people interact with one another, helped him think about what was next in the development of the faculty. So those are all things that I think we need to be recognizing and thinking about. I'll make one more comment on this. There's this myth that we should have this open door policy, that, that we should be sitting in our office with the door open and anytime anybody shows up and says, are you busy? No, 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 come on in, I'm not doing anything. And I, I, I really challenge this idea of open door. When you have an open door policy as your only policy, only certain people can come through that open door. It's partly based on your position and partly based on your privilege. Who's allowed to do that? There are some faculty and staff who will never ever go to the open door for whatever reason, their, their position, their privilege, whatever, their beliefs in themselves, their agency, all of that. So instead we do rounding. We systematically seek out to have a one-on-one -on -one with each person on a regular basis. So I say, for example, let's say there's a principal and a vice principal and a hundred teachers, two administrators, hundred teachers, that's 50 each. If you saw 10% of those people a day on a rounding, not an observation, just a check-in, a rounding, you would see everyone in two weeks. And imagine the conversations, what you will learn from having these brief rounding conversations with people where you seek out each and every one of them. You don't wait passively for them to show up at your office door. And by the way, it saves you time because over time people start to say, I know I'm gonna check in with Dominique. Usually I do it on Tuesdays or whatever. And they anticipate when they're gonna check in with you again and they'll store some things where they're not having to you know, wait to like find you in the office and like, are you busy kind of thing. So I'd like to interrupt this, you know, this mindset that leaders should be in their office with the door open waiting for problems to show up. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> We've never heard of that. Right. <laughs> Well, and speaking of sitting in your office and problems showing up, what about the beef that teachers are bringing forward that when they're having kids in class that are behaving in such a way that they need administrative support, whether they have to send the kid to the office or the administrator comes down, I hear a lot of teachers saying, I don't feel like the administrator has my back. I felt like the kid came back and they had a break and a snack or yeah. and nothing was done. And I also know that principals and administrators are really struggling with so many people filing lawsuits, families feeling really aggressive and like their needs are the most important needs. And it's and every kid is important and we're trying really hard to honor that, but it's a catch 22, it's hard. Right. And I know leaders are feeling it. 
and teachers may not be aware of what their struggle is. They just right. know what they're experiencing in their classroom. Right. And then you're getting a lot of threats from families. We're getting, you know, like I've had people like, wait till after school, we're going to take care of you, like threats. I mean, it's just, it's a, it, it, we have to calm that back down. But to the first point, if a student is sent out of class and, you know, they go have a meeting with an administrator, dean of students, vice principal, principal, whatever, usually the person that they're having the meeting with is not mad at them. They're not frustrated. Buttons haven't get pushed. So like I can have a rational conversation with you, calm you down, make a commitment and go back to class because I want you back in the learning environment. But often the teacher did not have a chance to resolve it. And so what one of the other things you said is when the administrator steps in the classroom to supervise so the teacher can step outside and have the accountable conversation privately with the student. I'd, you know, for the vast majority of the low level problematic behavior, I would rather have a leader step in the classroom for two or three minutes, let the teacher say to the, take the kid outside. Now, of course, we need support in what you say, you know, shaming them and screaming at them in the hallway is not going to help. But having these conversations like when you did this, this is how I'm feeling about it. This is what's happening in my class. And then when it gets repeated and we've noticed like we've had this hallway conversation three or four times, it's not changing. Now the administrator has a different level of potential intervention and evidence for the family. So, you know what, we've been having this conversation six days in the last 12, it's not changing. That's a different uh, level of conversation you can have. What I see when schools take this on is the teachers feel better because they got their say. They were able to look at the student and say, this is really bothering me. This is really hurting my feelings or this is not how I want our class. Well, we reached some agreements and this is not in the agreements that we reached together, that the teacher gets a say in this and their, and their class is being supervised. I, I say this all the time. I got three minutes of physics in me. I can supervise a physics class for three minutes. You know, at some point the content gets a little bit much for me and the kids are asking <laughs> questions, but I got three minutes of calculus in me. Don't worry. I can, I can do it. So let me cover the class. And if it doesn't resolve in that amount of time, then we need to plan a longer session where the student, the teacher, and someone else, an arbitrator or a mediator are present in that environment. But teachers need a chance to, 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 be, to be heard. They need a chance to say, this is what's bothering me. This is what I didn't like about it. This is how I'm feeling about it. They deserve that. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. So I know it wasn't COVID that caused this. I think since then, families are just a little more aware of how this is happening. Yeah. But behaviors with kids in classrooms, and when I say behaviors, it's just mm -hmm. a quickie way of saying the way children are acting in classes has changed significantly, yeah. I think, in the last 10 years at least. Yeah. And it's not the same as what I grew up with or what my parents grew up with, for sure. And for a lot of the kids' parents that are having kids in schools right now, they probably didn't grow up with this. And there's a huge shift. And I think it definitely starts with adults. You can even see it on social media. There's just a lack of tolerance or patience with different ideas or feelings. But in the classroom, we see kids who are throwing chairs over or, you know, going after other kids. And I have witnessed when teachers have to take all the kids that are doing the right thing out of the class on a little field trip <laughs> yeah. because the other kid is, you know, really having a difficult time and blowing out. Like we've yeah. seen middle school age kids laying on the floor, having a tantrum. These yeah. things do happen. And I don't think that it's every, you know, it's 
every happening every day in every classroom. That's not what I'm saying. But when those kinds, that level of situation comes up, I have no idea as an administrator what I would do. Of course, I'm not a seasoned administrator, so that's probably why. But <laughs> I think families don't understand this is really happening and it's disruptive, exactly. not just to the teacher, but to the kids, yep. to the whole school. Yep. What are some thoughts on that? Well, I'll tell you that the perception of violence at a school changes students' sense of belonging. There's studies out that say, not me personally experiencing violence, verbal or physical or whatever, but just being around it, like kids acting out like that, makes me feel less connected to the school. So it has a contaminating effect at the whole school. So you got to get it under control as a leader. The other side of that is, so why are, when, when are we asking the why questions? What is happening in that learner, their life right now that is causing them to behave this way? What, what are the antecedents? What are the triggers? What are the reasons that are happening? And, and can we remove some of those barriers? I do agree with you. There's a lot of students who are less engaged now in their learning for a variety of reasons. And it's been a decline. Uh, uh, cell phones are a major distraction with adolescents and their learning. They're, but there's all kinds of reasons for this. We can't just blame the technology. And I feel like we have to directly teach engagement and help students reach agreements of what they want, how do they want this class to operate. And a lot of times peers will take care of part of this and saying, no, that's not how we do it in this class. The interesting thing is we see the kid misbehaving like you just talked about, but the next hour, not at all. In a different classroom, peers, different teacher, whatever, that same kid is not acting that way. And there are some kids who have problematic behavior all day. Right. But a group of them, it's situation specific. And how do we create, how do we craft situations that say, you're learning, you're connected, you belong here, you feel good about yourself. I go back to something I was taught when I was becoming a teacher. Almost every student would rather be the bad student than the stupid student. So if they feel stupid, they're going to act bad because nobody wants to be perceived by peers as being stupid. And so if that under our you know, pressure for rigor and, and like accelerating learning, if we make kids feel stupid, they're gonna misbehave. If they don't find relevance in the class, they're gonna misbehave. If they're not agreements that how we act in this class, they're gonna, they're gonna have license to misbehave. If we haven't taught students about their emotional lives and how to regulate those emotions in the environment they're in, we're going to see these explosions. Mm. And so there's a lot of learning that we have to do. And I, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, Twitter and social media posts about, you know, I shouldn't have to put up with this behavior. And I get it. You shouldn't. But what are we willing to do about it? Yes. Uh, we have to be able to say, like, there's an old saying around, when the kid doesn't know how to read, we teach the kid to read. When the kid doesn't solve math problems correctly, we teach math. But when the kid misbehaves, we punish. And, and we have to figure out, like, what are the instructional interventions for behavior? And what are the accountable, what accountability systems we put in place when that problematic behavior occurs? At the lower level, teachers need to be able to say, I'm going to have a conversation with this kid. I have the relationship with this student. I'm going to talk about why this wasn't okay. And as it gets as it escalates or becomes more frequent, then we need 
more strict and more um, more administrators in that can start talking, you know, this is not okay. This is not how it's going to work here. Right. And I think a lot of teachers are bringing this up and just as a human in the world, I definitely see a weird shift of parents. I don't know if they don't feel equipped to teach social emotional skills or behavioral boundaries or, you know, natural consequences, but there's a lot of that happening in schools and families sort of expecting schools to do that. Yeah. And that's a really hard balance. I think, I think as an administrator in a building, you're the one that's got to balance that out. Like what part are we responsible for and what part is the family responsible for? And how do we draw those boundaries so that teachers don't feel overwhelmed and burnt out because they feel like they're actually parenting students instead of teaching them? Like that's a tricky, tricky thing. And I know that administrators have families coming at them and they've got to figure all that out. Right. I don't even know where they start. Yep. And there's a lot of there's a lot going on with that. I mean, there are families that don't believe their kid is misbehaving in any ways. You know, there's there's a lot going on. And again, how do we how do we learn? How do we learn about the causes? How do we learn about why is it that this student is acting in this way right now? And that's where we have to get to. And then what is our theory of how this is going to calm down? And what are we willing to put in place to help that? And I feel like we have done that historically with kids in special education, but not necessarily with kids throughout the community of the school community. That's right. Like we directly teach instruction on behavior instead of punishing those students. And so maybe applying something like that throughout the whole school is a better. And there's, there's stuff around positive behavior supports. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that we've learned, you know, multi-tiered systems of support. There's all kinds of stuff we've learned, but we don't always apply it because we're frustrated, we're angry, you know, whatever it is. And I think it's a trick, like, where does that begin? And we were talking with Will McCoy about like the top level administration in a district, your school board your superintendent, your deputy superintendent, those people, and how just the perception has shifted. And there's a lot more of a political vibe happening where school boards aren't just parents anymore that have joined in or maybe one or two local business community members. But now some people are even using it to kind of get into politics, not really understanding the role or maybe we've just shifted it because we live in a world that shifted, but we need from the board members all the way down to start thinking like that. We all need to think about our behavior. We all need to think about, yep. you know, what are we, how are we going to model this? How are we going to include this? How are kids going to have ownership of their behavior in the mm-hmm. school setting? That's a tricky thing when we live in a world where people feel very justified to just blow up yep. at any minute. <laughs> you make a really good point about modeling. Young people learn from the people around them. There's a lot of our behavior. Like we learn language, you know, we're born and we can speak virtually any language in the world based on the environment that we're shaped in, right? Same yeah. behavior. And so if you see aggressive, disrespectful behavior 
in in your school board meeting or between leaders at your school or whatever, that becomes okay because modeling is a very powerful way that we encourage learning. And so that your point around what students see, what's allowed or encouraged has to get shaped. So it's all of us. Well, and how, how do you model those good relationships, those good, we have differences, but we talk it out and we work yep. it out. How do you yep. model all those things in a school if the administrators aren't spending quality time in the building, right. having those conversations and check-ins with teachers? Right. I've had administrators that were literally, my boss is gone. I would say 50% of a semester doing trainings yeah. And none of that filtered down to any of us who worked in their department. Like we don't, yeah. we never found out what was going on there. And that's such a bummer because I feel like they're amazing people with amazing experiences and information to share. And I would have felt much more positive about my experience as their employee or their underling if they had just been around that I could have asked them questions or got their input on certain things. And I feel like that's such a missed opportunity. And I wish that we weren't trying to send people to do so many trainings, but maybe come back to that concept of let's be present and yep. build something together. Yep. And so to make another connection to leader credibility, another factor of leader credibility is competence. And we tend to think about how you do your job. You're competent in your job. Here's the interesting thing about the competence research. The people that report to you judge your competence primarily on your communication. The people that you report to judge your skills. So if I'm a school leader, how I communicate to teachers and staff is going to be how they perceive me as a competent leader. In a, in a large part because the vast majority of teachers and staff have never been principals. They don't know what that job is. There are very few current teachers who used to be principals. There are some, but not a lot. And so they don't know what the job of the principal is. They can only see fractions of the job. They saw lunch supervision. They see visiting a classroom. They see going to meetings, whatever. And so they judge communication, how effective you are in communicating, how often you communicate. What does the communication feel like? Is it these emails that are very strict and have a certain tone. So we're judging communication. Other aspect is around dynamism and the passion you bring and the energy you bring and the, the way in which you create a dynamic environment. All of that is going into, you know, how you model the behaviors that are allowed and the things that you pay attention to. The last area of leader credibility, just to finish the thought, is around forward thinking. Is an all of us want to work in organizations where we know the direction the organization is going and how we individually fit into that future. And really strong people with leader credibility are optimistic. They're not idealistic and they're not pessimistic. And I think we are dealing with a bunch of administrators right now who are pessimistic. And they say things about, you know, well, it's never going to get better and you don't know what's happening. And oh, look at the board and oh, look at this. And if you have pessimism, it's very hard to be a forward-thinking leader. And if you're idealistic, no one's following you because they don't believe that that's ever going to be the thing. But you need optimism. You have to believe that the future is brighter 
in part because of you and the efforts the team puts in place. And so, and people want to be part of that. They want to be part of, here's a vision. That vision seems good. It seems attainable. And here's my role in accomplishing that. And so, yeah, there was some problematic behavior today in third grade and the kids were rowdy and they were doing all this stuff. And here's what we did about it. It feels good to me, but it's part of a bigger thing that we're trying to accomplish as a school. That is going to be different leader credibility than the team who stands in the parking lot and says, you know, huddled around whispering because they don't want to get caught because there's not a culture where you can talk about this uh, at school. All that is established by the way the leader interacts and the, where, what the leader pays attention to. And what do you think? So I, Shannon and I have worked under some administrators that we all got you know, mid-year and end-of-year reviews, but there was never a mechanism for giving feedback to the administrator. And I'm sure that, I'm hoping that's not typical. We were in a small district, but what do you think about that? Should staff be able to give feedback, sort of review their bosses? Yes, we do at that. So I say, so when we're giving feedback to a teacher, we should ask for feedback about the feedback immediately. Nice. Did this feedback work? for you? Is there any way I could improve this feedback? How is my messaging in this? We should ask for that. And we should feel comfortable asking for feedback in a larger way. Like, how did this year go for you? Is there anything I could do to improve what happened? I can't, there, there are dynamics I can't change. You know, I get, I do a training and someone says the food wasn't good and it was too cold in the room. Yeah, thank you for telling me that. Nothing I can do, right? But if they say, you know, when you said this, it made me feel a little defensive and I don't know that you meant that. I can reflect on that. Or they say, you know what? The way you explained this really helped me and I gave it a try and three days, five days later, I saw a change in my classroom. That feels great. Yes. Oh, okay. So when your teachers give feedback and, and maybe the teacher is just fried, it's been a hard year, and they're feeling frustrated and you're trying to be optimistic and they're in the middle of the meeting shooting down everything that you have to say. I know that happens. I've been yep. present and watched it. What, what can a leader do? How yeah. can they turn that around? You're good at turning things around. Yeah, so an outlier like that, a singleton, I'm probably gonna say, you know, there's stuff going on in that person's life. I'm not living that person's life. I'm sure there are stressors, school, professionally, personally, whatever. So I'm going to follow up and have a conversation with that person. And, you know, like, there's nothing wrong with you saying this is not going to work. There's nothing wrong with you saying we've tried this before. But what can we do? So that'd be a one-on-one. -on -one. However, if that becomes the majority, as a leader, you should be thinking about that. If, if everyone is starting to say, or, you know, 50% or whatever are starting to say, nothing, it's not going to work. This is not going to work. This is, you know, you have to think about that. Like, there's some truth in that. And, you know, people have a lot of experience. They need to be valued for the experiences they have. And, and then we need to start idea generation. Like, what is it that we need to do to address this topic? And we should have, you know, brainstorming sessions and honest opinions. And we should be okay with that. You know, that the ideas we have may or may not be the solutions. And we should be asking for feedback. Now, we, we talk about different levels of decision. You know, level one 
I'm not looking for feedback on this decision. It's legal, ethical kinds of decisions. I have to do it. It's my job. That's what I'm paid to do. Level two are not in the legal ethical realm, but there are some guidelines or policies that I have to follow. And level three are like, this is up to us. I don't have to be the decider in a level three. You all can decide. We also need to be thinking as leaders about what's tight versus loose versus tight. So for, for me, I want kids to know what they're learning every day. I'm tied on this. I expect that when I walk into class, when I ask a kid, what are you learning? I expect them to know what they're learning because learning, being clear on learning and not just doing is a facilitator. So I expect that. I don't care how you do this. You know, I don't care what you do. You put in a PowerPoint every fifth slide, you have kids recited and chanted to you. I don't, put, I don't care how you do it. But when I walk, so my, my tight on the front end is students should know what they're learning. Loose how you get there, where you put it in the room, I don't care. Tight, I'm going to ask students in your class, what are they learning? And they should be able to answer. Now, I recognize there are times if we're doing more discovery or inquiry, you may not have gotten there yet, and that's fine. That's also part of the loose, right? You, you, you have a lab going on or some sort of simulation, and you haven't yet said this is what we're going to learn from it because you don't want to ruin the discovery. I get that. That's the conversation. So I think the types of decisions, so people feel more involved in the decision-making and then the, what, we, what we want as tight versus where's the flexibility, the individuality, the personality of the educator coming through. So I read a book by L. David Marquette. He was in the military. He was- uh, Oh yeah. You know I mean, who I'm talking about? Yeah. And his whole premise was, that in the military, which I think in some ways, education kind of mirrors some of those things that happen in military, where there's this real top-down, highly structured, you know, we have statewide standards and things that you have to follow and pay raises and everything is really, you know, dictated yep. by formulas and stuff. And he was talking about how they come at their people with a leader-follower mentality. Yep. And his whole goal was to really shift things and create a leader leader mentality where he took those middle management people that were in the trenches every day with their with the most of the enlisted men and asked them, like, what do you think we should yep. be doing in X, Y, Z situation, knowing that the consequences would also fall on them if it didn't work and that he saw those people really rise up yep. and do well. I just wonder. Is that. Yeah. doable with teachers because i also hear a lot of teachers right now where we are right in this moment like i can't take any more i shouldn't have to yeah. do more like just feeling overwhelmed so right. is that doable is that potentially good is that too much so i think teacher agency is suffering right now and agency is the belief that when you put forth effort good things things that you value will occur you can get to your goals by putting forth effort and those goals will be reinforcing and positive. So if you are not seeing impact or outcome from your effort, you put forth less effort because why bother anymore? And so I think that when you, what you said around teachers like I can't take anymore, we don't burn out because we work a lot. I'm not asking people to work a lot, but we don't burnout is that we burn out because what we do in our work is not making a difference. 
Yes. And the moral rewards, yes, the financial rewards of teaching, but there's also moral rewards from teaching. And the two main moral rewards that educators get is they have great relationships with young people. They want, and number two, they watch learning occur. And if those two moral rewards are compromised, like I don't have great relationships with students this year, or I don't think my students are learning from what I do, and my moral rewards are compromised, my agency goes down, and I'm not gonna put forth as much effort. So when you ask me, I'm gonna say, I don't know, I'm busy, I don't care, because I'm not feeling efficacious. That what I'm already doing is not making a difference, so why would I do more? And I think the opposite of that is, what I'm doing is making a difference, and I'm willing to talk to you about other things that we could collectively do to improve the experience that we all have. That's a different conversation. Um, turn the ship around. Turn the ship around. Oh, yes. Took a uh, I'm so glad you said that. It was driving me crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I know, um, I know it. Because <laughs> I almost just said we have to go in a different direction. That's when the book title came. So, um, and, and I think we have to honor that, that there are colleagues who are not feeling very efficacious. They don't have a sense of agency right now. And they're high risk for leaving or being very burned out, being you know, demoralized in their jobs. And so part of it is helping people recognize the little, the, we call them the small wins. What are the small little wins that like, when you did this, here's some great things that happened. Maybe it wasn't all the way to get where you wanted to get, but hey, this kid, 15 minutes of no interrupting of your class, that's awesome, you did that. Now I know 15 minutes later, the kid interrupted again and, and, and is frustrating you, but you got to 15 minutes. A week ago, there was not even 15 minutes. So you're, that's a win. You know, I said to a teacher before the school year ended, I was in a classroom and I, I said to the teacher, I just watched students use the academic language that you model. I heard it come out of your mouth and I went to two different groups and both of them were using the language you just modeled. And she got all emotional and said, am I actually doing anything right? I'm like, oh my God, what you just did was awesome. And those kids were producing academic language because of you. And I think we're not helping people recognize often enough that their efforts are making a difference. And as you noted in the beginning of this, of this session, it's a hard time. It's collectively a hard time. And so we are making a difference. We are living to our purpose and saying, young people are growing because of us. We make a difference. And if we're not, if we're not back in touch with our why, we're gonna question our what. Yes. Well, and it's funny. So right now we're doing a little bit of a question to each of our guests just to hear what everybody's saying. And usually we ask at the end, but I'm going to ask you right now, because it's perfect segue. What do you think is the why for education? Because historically in this country, education was started to create a skilled workforce. Right. I mean, ultimately that's what came about, right? Like we've got kids that are hanging out at home, but we need them to work. And how can we get them ready for that so that they'll do a good job? Yep. And I know that it's gone through a lot of metamorphosis over the years, but right now in this modern world where we're talking about AI being able to do so much stuff, but is it the machines we should be afraid of? Or is it the people running the machines? Yep. I kind of feel like the people. Yep. <laughs> but what, why are we educating kids? What is the purpose in that? We need to redefine that so that we can catch that vision again, because it's different than it used to be. To me, 
a main purpose of why I do this job is to help other people reach their aspirations. And then in part, I have to help them set their aspirations because I don't want them to have low aspirations, but also to put things in place to reach those aspirations. And, and when you say, this is what I aspire, not what to do. This is what I aspire, who I want to be, the kind of person in this world. That's why we're here. So yes, we give them academic skills and some of those skills are gonna be very temporary and, and computers can do it faster than I can do it. But some of those skills are uniquely human, at least at this point. And the capacity to love and the, the idea that I can do something kind for another person, that you know, those are the kinds of things like, who do you wanna be in the world? What's your aspiration? And yes, you need to have a job and make money and the workplace is changing dramatically and you know, we don't even know the kinds of jobs. Who would have thought that we have, you know, AI generators, you know, 10 years ago, and there's a whole new job around this, you know, because the jobs are changing. But that's, that's kind of where my answer is about what, how do we help? And when I say people, I mean the teachers, our colleagues, our students, how do you help people reach their aspirations and help them see the aspiration, the potential they have, and then to accomplish that? For me right now, belonging is a really important concept. Yes. It's, been in the re- it's been in the research for decades. And we're realizing that a lot of people, for whatever reason, pandemic or not, don't feel like belong. And if you don't feel you belong, you, there's a lot of self-doubt and it's actually harmful to your health to not feel you belong. I mean, there's studies on like long-term health outcomes of not feeling like you belong, like you don't have a place. I, I just can't tell you how many authors have this belonging, you know, the giver, there's a line in the giver about not fitting in and why do you not belong? I mean, it's just all these, you know, Tony Morrison talked about belonging. Like when you look, when a child enters the room, do your eyes light up? That's what they need from you. I mean, there's people have talked about belonging for years, but right now I feel like if I could help young people feel that they belong, like they're part of something bigger and that it's important and worth their time, I will have done a good job when you belong, you learn. And I feel like when you do that, you help those students who maybe don't have something that they're aspiring to yet. Because yeah. that was going to be one of my follow-up questions. How do you engage one of those? You know, we all have students who aren't aspiring or at least at that point in time, aren't really aspiring to much. And so I feel like you already answered my question right there. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. And I think we have to be careful that we aspire, like we don't ask kindergartners, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't have mind them having that conversation, but it's more than that. It's not just what you want to be. It's who you want to be. Yes. Yes. And I think in this time where we're at this weird pivotal moment in education, we're seeing the rates of college freshmen who are choosing or proclaiming that they're going to go into education has dropped almost in half, maybe a little bit below half of what it was even five years ago. So we have less teachers coming into the workforce. Yeah. We have so many teachers. I mean, if you look on social media, there are a ton of teachers building their side hustle, trying to leave education. Like the passion has left a lot of people. And I feel like I feel like administrators need to catch a vision that they are the fishermen for pulling Mm -hmm. in these nets of amazing people into their building and creating a hum in their building that people want to be a part of. 
Yeah. And I would love to see administrators feel super inspired and able to inspire others because I know they're exhausted too. I know it's been hard on everyone. I'm not trying to say it was just teachers. Shannon and I are special service providers and COVID did a number on us too. It was just hard, right? And the changing times. So we all are experiencing that, but I think administrators, sometimes we forget to have empathy for them and what they're going through. They're getting it from every direction. And yet they are trying to figure out how to keep people invested and want to stay. And sometimes it's about filling that position because there's so few people to choose from. How can we inspire administrators to to reignite that passion and that vision in their buildings? How harder, but but yes. And you were you're talking about teacher shortages and like this the report I read that parent teachers who are also parents say to their kids, "Don't become a teacher." That percentage is increasing dramatically. So it's not just college kids; it's also college kids who have parents who were teachers saying, "Don't do this job." We all face adversity in our lives. And the the pandemic was one major adversity that we faced and loneliness and isolation and things like that. And I'm learning right now a lot about the adversity quotient. And there's an argument that much like um, an emotional quotient and other kinds of learning, there's an adversity quotient. And the ability so it's not just resilience because resilience could mean it could mean suck it up and put up with terrible things in your life which is not what we're talking about and so the idea of an adversity quotient of like how how capable are you in addressing the adversities that come in your life the obstacles that occur and what tools do you have that you can respond which includes protesting and contacting authorities it's not just putting up with it it's not that so i'm very interested right now in how do we build people's adversity quotients so when challenges occur we don't give up that as a leader i'm helping people with their own adversity quotients not just students like grown-ups like things are going to happen in your life some of which will be professional but some will be personal and how you how you address them the skills you have are important life skills that you that will serve you whatever job you have. And by the way, when I do this work, a whole bunch of people like their job better because they don't find the adversity is from the work. Yes. Well, and I think, I don't know, and I'm not gonna try and start a big conversation as we're getting close to wrapping up, but I would love to hear just off the cuff, we kind of need to recreate some boundaries within education and roles, understanding our roles and being willing to take that mm-hmm. as educators, but also families and community. Yeah. And I think with a lot of the, I mean, I hate to use the word discipline. I know some people that's what they relate it to, but with some of the behavior or disengagement of students that's creating hardship in the school and that sort of toxic, contagious attitude that's happening for some kids we need parents to to check back in and really support educators and support boundaries that the schools are having to create in order to be functional yeah i mean how do we do that ideas i think it it also comes there's a whole political issue that you're raising here about like what's allowed in a community what's not allowed in a community who's in charge of the curriculum all kinds of stuff that were our society is trying to clarify and that's the hard moment we're all facing is 
what does it mean to be an educator? What are the, what are the regulations, rules that are gonna go govern our profession in the years to come? And how is society figuring out those aspects? And, and you know, we've had other times of this. We've had other very tumultuous times in, in education where there's lots of conflict. This is one of those times where we're trying to clarify what is the role of schools? And as leaders, we have to be the stewards of this. We have to not be afraid of conversation. We do have to set boundaries and guidelines. So if someone comes in my office and screaming, I'm not having this conversation. We're gonna end the meeting now because there's a, you know, when, when this happens, we're not gonna make good decisions. We're not gonna hear each other. So, but we need those boundaries and we need to be able to engage in some very respectful conversations about what we want as the experiences young people have growing up. And so I, I think it's, I, I, I put it in the, this is not the first time, it's an uncomfortable time. And I believe in our democracy that we come out better from having this dialogue. Right. Yeah, I think we need to have that discussion. And I feel like a lot of people, if you're not an educator or working in education, or if you're not a student or have a student, a lot of people think these discussions aren't really for them to have, but it is for all of us for because of education is just how we are preparing students to become the adults. And so it really does affect us all. And I, I would love to see more people, even if they don't feel connected to education, having these conversations, yep. even yep. if they're hard, because it's what's going to move us forward. I can't even think what is when what other times have we had this kind of situation going on i'm sure with different issues of course but what what are some do you know some off the top of your head think about integration of schools Ooh, good one there was all kinds of public debate about what schools should be and shouldn't be here we have what's called the lemon grove incident around uh, kids who are acquiring english as an additional language what is the program that we should be offering we have lao versus nichols who'd be like where where are we at? And a society had to come to terms and say, like, what do we do? So we've had we've had big issues in education. I mean, when we moved away from more religious focused education a long time ago, what was the role of schools in society? Mm. You know, how many years should you go to school? Because, you know, we need you on the farms and, and we want you out in grade six. I mean, there have been major conversations in society about schools. This is one of them. And I believe in our, I said this earlier, I believe in our democracy. I think our democracy is amazing. And we have systems in place for having public discourse where we don't agree with one another. And we yet agree to live in a society where there's government that, that the government says, here are the ways we engage. And here are the rules and there are grievance procedures and resolution procedures and courts and laws and all kinds of stuff. So I believe that even though it's tense and difficult and, and sometimes painful for people, we, we are gonna clarify what we believe around schools. And I think once we do that, we will see people returning to this noble profession. This is part of the reason for anybody listening that I called Doug and asked him to do this interview because I feel like we all hear a lot of negative and some of the stuff that's in the media, I don't know, negativity seems to sell, that's a bummer. Yep. Because at the end of the day, there's so much hope Yeah. when we kind of throw all of the balls up in the air yep. and we're trying to figure out when, as they land, how we're going to reorganize those. That's actually a beautiful time for good change, positive change. 
Right. I just always appreciate so much the way that you present information because it is optimistic and it provides that hope. I think people need to hear that there's so much hope. Thank you. It's great to talk to you again. I know. We love Thank having you. We'll, we'll find another reason to interview you. Awesome. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> Thank you so much. He's awesome. He is. Yeah. In this particular instance, 99.9% .9 of the time, I get questions out to people in advance so that they already know what we're going to talk about. He and I talked on the phone a little bit before we scheduled this interview, but I forgot to put the questions together because I'm just crazy right now. And But he, he's a good one that doesn't need it, you know? Yeah, he's, he, he's off the cuff with all this information. He knows his stuff and he just is well-read and, and has so much experience that he brings so much to the table that we could just talk. I know. I wish he was an administrator. I wish all administrators were like him. I know. Between yes. him and Will, we've had some incredible people to talk to. And I'm like, we need more administrators to catch that spirit and have that attitude because it is contagious. And I would work for either of those gentlemen in a heartbeat. I know. Right? right. Although when they're talking about some of those things, I look back and I think, oh, I do see people doing those things. Like I have heard some of those comments and I have been asked those questions. And so I do think they're going in the right direction. Well, and I think that's actually such a good point because sometimes when we emotionally get to a place where we're feeling fried or we're feeling burnt out or we're feeling unheard, we kind of lose sight of the good things that administrators have done. I had one administrator when I was working here in New Mexico named Alicia Heim and Himes. And she, I honestly have to say, I would work for her again in a heartbeat because if you had an issue, she would listen. And when she had feedback that maybe put the responsibility back on me, she was number one, always right. <laughs> but number two, the way that she would word it was such that it didn't feel like an attack. It just felt like logic. And I, that is a gift. I don't know how she does it, but there are awesome administrators out there. And there are some that have the potential to be, and they just need a little nudge or maybe some more practice or some new ideas because I think their heart is in the right place. I think it's actually not that many people who have poor attitudes. I feel like more of them have good attitudes. They just haven't quite figured it out. So I'm hoping that we're sending them some good information that will be beneficial to them. And I also hope that teachers and educators are listening and thinking like you're thinking, you know, yeah, I have, I have had some good experiences. I have heard some of this or seen some of this or yeah, because we all need to kind of get in reinvigorated that it's not as bad as it's felt that we're coming out yeah. of it. It's, it's getting, getting better. better for sure yeah I think it is and I think if you have that mindset it might actually get better absolutely absolutely that's the key well I think that's a really great wrap up and I so, do too <laughs> yeah I hope that everybody listening enjoyed this interview I know I did Shannon did it was you? great yeah it was good absolutely yeah we are working on another interview, but we're going to have this series rolling out. So keep your eyes out on your favorite place to get a podcast. Please, please, please subscribe, download these episodes because it makes it possible for us to do more. And it makes it possible for us to get a wider variety of people to come talk. 
If you're watching us on YouTube, there's a subscribe button down there. Will you please push it? <laughs> please click and subscribe, like this video. Even if you don't have time to watch the whole thing, please like it, subscribe, share with your friends. It just makes it possible for us to continue doing this. And we really want to do something good to support education and educators and families because it's been a hard time and we're coming out of it. We're gonna do great things. Together, Together we can, can do better. better. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Bye.